There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. All right, so today we're going to cover the stomach, but I thought what we could begin with is a story about the stomach. So just bear with me, I'm bringing the book over to read part of it. Oh, in the beginning. Oh. So um, before 1822, um, the understanding, the medical understanding, physiological understanding of what the stomach did was it was a vat, a stew pot. Ooh. It putrefied our food, um, rotted our food. And somehow we then absorbed it. It wasn't known at this point that the stomach actually performed digestive functions. What's this, 1822? 1822. All right, just that year. Well, this is where it all changed, oh. Michael. So, so in Michigan, there was a man known as Ale- Alexis St. Martin. So he was a French-Canadian trapper, which I guess is a person who used to trap uh, animals, Hopefully maybe animals. shoot them, yeah, and maybe sell their furs. I could be completely wrong here. No, that's what I assume a trapper is. And then maybe sell the meat or eat the meat, something like that. Anyway, he was shot in the stomach by a friend. Well, not really a friend, but he <laughs> not was anymore. Shot, he was shot in the stomach <laughs> with a uh, gun. Yeah, a gun, about three or four feet away. So it was pretty close. That's intentional. <laughs> Put a hole through his abdominal wall, and p- people can probably see this. Um, those who are watching on the video. So put a hole through his abdominal wall into yeah. his stomach. Okay. And so he was then taken to William Beaumont, who was a army surgeon who nursed him back to health. But what happened was the hole stayed as a hole and it stayed with a hole in, into his stomach. So you could actually look in through the abdominal wall 
and it continued into his stomach. Wait, so if you were him, I could lift up your shirt and look into your stomach? Yes. Wow. Technically, the the, the organ, the stomach, not just, you know, sometimes we colloquially just use stomach as that the area. The gut. Yeah, yeah. The abdomen. So there was a hole straight through his abdominal wall into his stomach um, organ. Wow. And this, so this healed, but it stayed as a fistula. Okay. So, so that's a, a direct con- connection. Yeah, yeah. All right. And so what William Beaumont did, he became not only the surgeon and the doctor, but also now a, uh, a gastroenterologist scientist, yeah. if that's a word. Was he the first? No. Oh. I'm sure, surely not. But anyway, what he started to do is experiments. So he would take out contents of his stomach and analyze it. But he would also get bits of food tie it to a string and then throw it through the hole into his go, stomach. Go fishing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And leave it in there for a few days and then pull it out and have a look what's happened to it. To see if it's digested or not. Yeah, yeah. And so this is where they first identified that it wasn't just a, a pit of despair. It was actually <laughs> a place where things chemically digested. Yes, that's right. And so like acid, it was now known that there was... Uh, Do you reckon he tasted it? Do you reckon that's how we determine whether it was an acid? Because they used to, to taste everything. Everything, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, probably. It's not in the story. Um, but I would have left that out of my story too if I wrote it. Yeah. And the, the, um, the St. Martin actually outlived William Beaumont. He lived to 80 plus years. Really? So it's not like his fistula, fistula hampered his longevity. So, you didn't, so would you think it didn't get infected because... Yeah, it's interesting. I have no idea. The acid? There's quite a good immune response then. That's part of our first line of defense, right? Our stomach. Yeah, one of them. Right? You got the innate and the adaptive. That's part of the innate. You got all the, the acids, what, pH 1 to 3? So pretty much should destroy a lot of bacterial viruses that get in. Would do, would do. Maybe well, that's why. And we'll get to that. So that's the story to start today's podcast. And so if you good. haven't realized already, we're going to cover the stomach. And now I'll cross you across to Michael. Okay. And he'll introduce the podcast. <laughs> Oh, how formal. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike. I'm joined here with Dr. Matt Barton. We are both senior lecturers at Griffith University here in Queensland, Australia, and we go through how the body works. Mm. We go through different diseases. We go through different anatomical locations. We go through different structures and tell you everything you need to know so you don't have to open up that horrible textbook. Is that right? Is it just one generic textbook? There's always that one that's prescribed that and like. everyone hates it. Okay. All right. So we are your textbook. Today we're going through the stomach and there's a couple of things we need to go through. Firstly, what Matt identified in his story is that the stomach isn't just a pit. Uh, <laughs> it is a storage unit, but it is also a primary site of digestion. Yeah. And you can break digestion up into chemical and mechanical digestion. And the that's stomach the only, does both. That's the only two? Correct. Okay. Yeah, I can't think of another one. No, nor can I. So mechanical and chemical, and the stomach does both. So here's, here's one for you to right. remember the function of the gastrointestinal system. Yeah. I know we're only focusing on one part, but the function, which I read, which I thought was awesome, was the function of the digestive tract or the alimentary canal or the gastrointestinal tract is to put the meal into molecules. Meal to molecules. Yeah. And that's from mouth to anus. Yes. So the mouth to anus is the anatomy or the tract uh, meal to molecules is the physiology. I've told you. And I'm yes, sure. you did it to your students. Well, maybe let's <laughs> re- <laughs> let's let me rephrase. I was about to do a lecture, and I said to the students, "Today, everybody, this is how I open the lecture. Today, I will show you mouth to anus." 
Um, or did you say you've heard of mouth to mouth? Today is mouth to anus. <laughs> and then I had to backtrack and say, I mean, we're going through the digestive system beginning at the mouth going to the anus because a lot of students there... Eyes widened and I saw my career vanishing before <laughs> before my eyes. Just uh, one complaint and there I go. So I had to clarify, no, digestive system, mouth to anus, meals to molecules. That's a good one. I like these. So when we look at chemical digestion, mechanical digestion, mechanical is physically break, breaking things apart. Stomach does this. And chemical is using enzymes and molecules like molecular scissors to break things apart, breaking things apart on the molecular level. And again, the stomach does both. So I think in order for us to really get into the uh, the stomach of this... I like that. Is there a... Uh, Thank you. Um, we need to start talking about the anatomy. Well, firstly... You highlighted where the stomach is located. Mm. You pointed. It's in the abdomen. But let's talk a little bit more specifically. So the stomach... The region of the abdomen? Well, I think we need to look or at... the position? Both. Okay. So if we... Okay. So we all know that the diaphragm is the anatomical barrier between the thoracic cavity and the abdominal cavity, right? So if we were to take the diaphragm as our reference point... Yeah. And you can all find the diaphragm. Breathe in and out. You can feel that diaphragm moving, right? Just underneath the ribs. Probably not. Really? I don't think you could touch it, to be honest. Well, some people say you can, but I, I, I can. I don't think it's possible. You probably don't have a lower enough body fat percentage to be able to do that, <laughs> but I think I've I've got that covered. Uh, so when we look at the diaphragm, the stomach is one of the first organs in the abdomen. If you follow the esophagus down, obviously, mm. so the esophagus moves through the thorax into the abdomen. And after about three or so centimetres, the esophagus becomes the stomach. And it, the esophagus, even though it moves down straight through the thorax into the abdomen, it moves a bit to the left. And that little bit to the left after a couple of centimetres becomes the stomach. So the stomach is towards the left-hand side of your abdomen. So Okay. So for your abdominal region, if you're looking at the anterior view of your stomach, oh, yeah. sorry, your abdomen, yeah, and you broke that into can broke it into quadrants, so four yeah. or nine parts. Yeah. Nondrants. <laughs> if you were to break it into four, okay, so the midline being the vertical axis and then the horizontal maybe... Uh, umbilical. Umbilical. Yeah. Um, then the stomach would be in the left upper quadrant. Correct. But if you broke it into nine, um, do you want to say the nine? Yeah, it'll be in the epigastric, which is pretty much top middle. And top left, which is going to be left hypochondriac, which means under ribs. And then possibly a bit of it might come into the umbilical, which is the center point. So when we look at the stomach, after the esophagus, the stomach, the first part of the stomach is called the cardiac region. And that cardiac region, if you want to identify it on your surface anatomy, you can find your left incisor, right? So your tooth. And then get a 40 centimeter ruler and draw a straight line down from your left incisor. Is this an accurate way of doing it? This is what Grey's Anatomy says. This okay. is how I tell my students. And draw a 40 centimeter line from your left incisor down and that's going to identify where the cardiac portion of your stomach is, which is basically the first part of your stomach. Right. And then the cardiac portion goes into the fundus, which is like the roof of the stomach, which sort of touches the diaphragm. And you can find the fundus by, again, going to your fifth intercostal space on your left-hand side, just pretty much underneath your nipple, I, and that's where your fundus is. Well, I, when I read the fundus, I actually thought it reminds me of you. Because I'm fundus? <laughs> no, it's quite muscular, but oh. it's 
full of guys. (laughs) (laughs) I think you needed the uh, crickets. Well, the applause. I like that one. Okay, that was that was good. That was good. Um, so the fundus. Now you can identify the fundus. Left nipple, first intercostal space. There is pretty much where the fundus is. But I don't, don't know how accurate the nipple as a landmark is. What happens if, like in your case, me. you've got a, a pec implant? <laughs> Just on the left hand side, <laughs> my left pec is crooked. significantly larger than my right. Um, look, let's let's just say pec implants aside. For the uh, textbook person. That's right. It, that, it, that's where it is. Fifth intercostal space on the left. If you can count your ribs, then there you go. And that's yeah. about the fundus. But don't get that confused with if there's pain there. It doesn't mean it's fundal pain. Um, I've never heard that term, fundal pain. Uh, would you say fundal or fundus-associated pain? I don't know. Anyway. I'm not sure how true this is. I probably should have looked it up. But I, th- I have heard that because the fundus is where all the uh, air and gas can accumulate, it can push up onto the heart because the heart kind of sits on the diaphragm. What's the, the bottom of the heart, the base of the no, actually the apex of the heart is continuous with the diaphragm in terms of its pericardium, and the the superior aspect of uh, the stomach is the diaphragm, the the um, the dome of the left the left dome of the diaphragm. And so, I was always told that if you had excessive amounts of gas in the fundus, it can push up onto the heart and potentially cause Maybe a form of ischemic pain. I'm not sure how really That's correct that is. I probably really should have checked it. Yeah, instead of telling and people. And like a so belch can relieve it. Really? Yeah. Okay. But with the fundus, you can get um, parts of it slipping up through the diaphragm, which is known as a hiatus hernia. Yes, through which is one of the causes of uh, reflux, Yeah, which we'll get to. Okay. So we're still at the fundus here. Um, and the reason why you don't necessarily associate stomach pain with the left-hand side is because of the embryology, right? Often, stomach pain is epigastric. Yeah, I don't know. Not located I don't know, to the left. I don't know if it's like to do with the embryology, though. I thought it was. But there you go. So, a lot of things we don't know about the stomach, by the looks of it. Um, below the fundus, you've got the body of the stomach. And when you look at the body of the stomach, what you're going to find is that the stomach is predominantly on the left with its... with a gr- It's basically got this J shape to it. And the J shape is the very left-hand boundary, what we call the lateral boundary of the stomach because it's closer to the side of the body. That's called the greater curvature. Right. And then, so this comes in with embryology now. And then the but I won't do it now. But I'll just thank Christ. <laughs> and then the innermost boundary is the lesser curvature. Okay. And that's the medial boundary. We okay? You, yeah. Do you want to talk about some embryology now? Oh, not Probably not yet. Um, but the J curvature or the J morphology of the stomach is essentially any uh, animal, pretty much all the vertebrates that have a function in stomach that's doing more than just a passage will be shaped in a J morphology. Do we know why? Well, the esophagus, as we know, is a fairly um, cylindrical long tube, which is just for a, a conduit. And then it comes into the stomach. Now, if you were like a some of the basic marine life, vertebrates which i have been called um they have pond scum for example (laughs) (laughs) they um are what we call filter feeders they kind of just um golf up a lot of water and filter through food particles you know like plankton and all that kind of stuff and they just kind of sieve through the food and then just kind of moves through the digestive tract and 
continues after digestion and then absorption. So they don't need a stomach. That's right. But when you start to need to bite off big chunks of meat or um, particles of food, then you need to store it for a point in time. And so, so you're saying between feeding and fasting, yeah, so like more, a fish is sort of constantly eating. Some some do, but then you yeah. have the ones that are maybe more carnivorous. No, carnivore. Yeah, you know, like carnivorous. There we go. Um, I guess most. Well, maybe not. Yeah. Anyway, I'll continue on. Um, the ones that bite off, you know, bigger chunks of things, or more maybe than, more than they can chew. That's right. Brilliant. Um, then they Thank need you. this dilatation region of their gastrointestinal tract. Uh, and that's where the stomach probably first evolved. Yeah. Because then if you follow the stomach through, then the next part along that tract is the kind of the duodenum, which becomes thinner again. Yeah. So the stomach has kind of evolved to be this a bigger expansion, but it's shaped like a J. Well, that expansion is, I think it, it holds something like half a litre when it's empty and it can expand to hold around about two litres. Depending on what you mean for humans? For humans. Okay, yeah. And this is the reason why when you eat food, because your stomach expands so much, it pushes everything down below it, which is the bowel, the intestines, large intestines. And that's the reason why you need to loosen your belt because everything's pushed down because your stomach has expanded so much. Right. Yeah. It's not because there's food in your intestines, because that food is slowly sort of, um, what's the word that we Squ- use? Squirting. Squirted through from the stomach. because of Kind. Well, this is the thing. So when the food's in the stomach, we've got the fundus, the body of, and then the body of the stomach, and then the lowest portion of the stomach before it turns into the duodenum or the first part of the small intestines. That's called the pylorus or the pyloric antrum, sometimes just termed the antrum. And so, which is widening, I think. Yes, even though it's a thinning of the stomach, but it's wider than the duodenum. And so at both ends of the stomach, so at the cardiac portion, which is the first part of the stomach coming from the esophagus, and at the antrum or the pyloric portion, which is the last part of the stomach going into the duodenum, you have a lot of circular smooth muscle there. And this circular smooth muscle is thickened and it creates sphincters. And these sphincters are basically ways to shut off... uh, Or retropulsion backwards. Yeah, or to inhibit retropulsion of food. Um or foodstuffs. And so it basically just separates out structures of the GIT. Um, so any part of the gross anatomy that we've missed out on? We'll just do the main reg- regions first, which you probably have said. Um, so cardia is number one. That's the first part. And that's kind of the transition point between the, the uh, esophagus into the stomach proper. Yep. So not all animals will have this. It seems to be more present in mammals. But it is histologically... So if you were to look at the stomach on the outside, you wouldn't really be able to discern the different regions of the gastrointestinal tract. But you, if you were on the inside and you look particularly under a microscope, you would be able to do it. Yeah, And right. so the transition point from the esophagus, which I believe is more like stratified squamous, so flat, many layers of cell because yeah. it's more abrasive. Is that right? And yep. it can just replenish. Whereas as you move into the stomach, it's become simple columnar. That's right. Like... And Big so, column, single, single column-shaped epithelia. So when we go, uh, appears that the cardia, which is the first part of the stomach, is that transition between the esophagus now into the stomach. Um, this can be discerned quite easily histologically, and mammals seem to have uh, a cardia, whereas other animals don't seem to have them. Um, at least with humans, and you can touch on this further, um, it appears to be a region that produces a lot of mucus. 
Then the next part is the fundus. Now, it's interesting in comparative anatomy, they don't seem to discern a fundus and a body as a separate part. Okay, but in the human side of things, you've got the fundus, which is the most superior aspect, and the domey part, which the is roof. Yep, which, as we said, is the, um, the part that most likely has the gas in it. And then the body, which is the vast majority of the stomach in terms of size. And then we go into a, the, the, the last region, which you can either call the distal or the inferior, is the pylorus. And that can be broken into kind of three parts, which I think you said is the antrum. Yep. Then you've got this kind of sphincter region and what was the third? Duodenal? Yeah, I don't think that's it. Distal? Anyway. No, I can't remember now. We'll say one of those. I'll just... Sorry, got it. So the antrum of the pylorus, yeah. the canal, yep. and the sphincter. There we go. So the sphincter is the last part before it becomes the duodenum. Yeah, and right. anywhere there seems to be uh, extra type of muscle, um, these can be, in particular if it's circular, seems to be in locations of where you'll see the sphincter. And the sphincter seems to be very exaggerated at the pylorus sphincter, which is going to be dictating how much fluid can get out. Yeah. And then going back up to where the cardio is, yep. cardio is and that there's a probably a lower esophageal sphincter there, but that's probably not too powerful, unlike the... Yeah, I don't uh, think it's a true anatomical sphincter like the pyloric sphincter is. And the pyloris can, or the sphincter at the pyloris can be a, a congenital abnormality in newborns. So that's stenosis. Okay. And so that means it's so hypertrophied that it doesn't allow the stomach to empty. Oh. And so when the baby feeds, in this case it would be milk, they get projectile vomiting. Gotcha. So it will go f- across the other side of the room. That far. So that's usually an indication. And I think it's usually more in boys. Really? Yeah. The, Why? The male sex. To know. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So we've got the gross anatomy sorted. I think it's Are those impor- regions okay? I think it's very good. Okay. Um, now, we can either, it's up to you, we can either start talking about the innovation and blood supply, or we can start talking about the histology and look at the mucosal, submucosal, muscularis, and serosal. Where, where do you want to begin? Either way, we're going to talk about it. Mm. Let's talk about innovation. So Extrinsic. Blood, blood and nervous? Blood and nervous. Yeah, let's talk about both vasculature and innovation. All right. Obviously, the stomach, being a structural organ, needs to get nutrients and oxygen right? In order for the cells to survive and do their function. So what it needs is a blood supply and that blood supply comes from the abdominal aorta. So as the aorta exits the heart from the left ventricle, it obviously descends down through from the thoracic cavity, through the diaphragm, through a hole in the diaphragm into the abdomen. T12, I think. Yes, that's right. Into the diaphragm. And as it goes down, one of the first branches that comes out is what's called the celiac trunk. Now, that's the celiac trunk, then the renal? Oh, you mean just, yeah. Uh, well, now you put them in the spot. The, there's three blood vessels that come off anteriorly yeah. of the abdominal aorta, and they're usually... Or mesenteric. They're usually doing the... Um, well, they give blood to the gut. So yeah. you've, got, you've got a blood vessel that does foregut, one midgut, one hindgut. Yeah. And so this is going to be your celiac your mesenteric That's right. superior and inferior. Yep. And, and then you have the lateral renal. branches and the, one of the main ones is the renals. Okay. So we've got this... Which would be approximately T1. Oh, sorry, L1. So we've got this tube coming down. That's the aorta. It's got oxygenated, nutrient-rich blood 
first branch that comes straight out of the aorta is going to be that of the celiac trunk. And there's going to be around about three branches off the celiac trunk itself. So and this is all foregut. This is all foregut. So this is going to be things like stomach, liver, spleen, a little bit of the duodenum, and a little bit of the distal esophagus. And pancreas. And pancreas. So all we need to talk about now is the stomach. Mm-hmm. And there's four arteries that come off. So obviously I said there's three branches, but each of these branches has multiple branches themselves. So there's four arteries that feed the stomach and they basically feed the lesser curvature, which is going to be the medial aspect of the stomach and the greater curvature, which is the lateral aspect of the stomach. And they're basically the left and right gastric artery and the left and right gastroepiploic artery. Or gastroemental. Or gastroemental. So the left and right gastric artery, they basically feed into the lesser curvature and the uh, left and right gastroepiploic or gastromental, did you say, is the greater curvature. Now, obviously, there's going to be branches off those that help feed the spleen, some that goes off to the liver, some that go to the pancreas and so forth, but they're the four major arteries, right? Pretty yep. pretty good? Yeah. Yep. Now, the innervation that comes through, particularly that of the sympathetic innervation, so there's nerves that come to the stomach to tell it what to do, and these are nerves that are coming from the central nervous system, so this is extrinsic innervation. The stomach has its own intrinsic nervous system, like right. the heart? Like the heart does, um, which we'll talk about when we go through the layers of the stomach. But when we look at the extrinsic, what tells it to do, uh, what innovation tells it to do what it needs to do is going to be that of the sympathetic, also known as the... Fight and flight. And the parasympathetic... Rest and digest. Very good. So which one do you think is going to be most active here in order to tell the stomach to do what it needs to do? Parasympathetic. Rest and digest, that's right. And so Which is vagus. That's right, because when you look at the parasympathetic nervous system, which is going to be craniosacral, you're going to have one nerve that moves through the cranial ridge. Only one cranial nerve actually moves down below the head and neck, and that's going to be that of the vagus nerve. And so it's going to be vagal nerve branches, which is the parasympathetic innovation for the stomach. All right? Now, 90% of, these vagal, uh, of the vagal innovation is afferent. So what does that tell you? Oh, it's taking sensory information back. That's right. 90%. So 10% is only efferent, which is, has a motor. Mo- motor function to it. So, so is the afferent just pretty much stretch or is it It's going to be chemical. stretch, chemical. So chemical could be noxious, nutritional. It could be um, just general information. Acid. Acid. All that type of stuff is being fed back. Okay. Because there's obviously a very tight cephalic control of the stomach in regards to digestion. And so the stomach and the brain actually has a tight connection back and forth. Um, the brain can tell the stomach, start secreting acid, start releasing your components even with no food. And the stomach can feed back to the brain to say whether it's full, whether it needs more. Um, and so you might prepare the stomach yeah. just by thought before you put food into it. Yeah, or smell. Okay. Right? Or even just taste, putting something on the tongue. You don't, don't even need the actual food inside the stomach. Okay. Make sense? Yeah. All right. So that's the parasympathetic, but the sympathetic, which is going to basically stop the stomach from having its, doing its digestive properties, is going to come out of between T5 to T10. And because we know the sympathetic innovation is thoracolumbar, it always comes out of thoracic lumbar. For the stomach, between T5 T10, you've got the splanchnic nerve coming out going to the celiac ganglion, and then from the celiac ganglion, you've got the celiac plexus, which is going to go to the stomach. And it's going to basically say, hold up, don't digest. Okay. Easy peasy? Lemon squeezy? And so it would probably 
take away blood supply to the stomach as well? Take away blood supply. So the sympathetic reaction would be um, oh, kind yeah. of vasoconstrict blood yeah, to the point. area. Yeah, good point. Would it also do just decrease secretion or just have I, no effect on secretions? No, I think it does. Because uh, I think there's the, adrenergic receptors in the stomach, okay. which I assume have an inhibitory effect on uh, hormone release and enzyme release. Because I think the, the parasympathetic is the M1 receptor. Does that sound right? I think it's M3. At least the no, or acid, least acid anyway. Maybe not the other. No, I think secretion. it's M three. Okay, because I I always thought the heart is M two. M one is pretty much just acid secretion, and everything else. All right, listeners, I want you to correct us, but I think that at the parietal cell where we release acid, which we'll talk about shortly, it's an M three cholinergic receptor. Okay, could be wrong, but it's more likely that Matt's wrong because I'm usually correct with everything that I say. All right, so that is the extrinsic innovation. That is the blood supply. We're good? And you did nerve supply as well. Yeah, so very good. So let me do um, embryology now. All right, everyone. So I'll let you know, probably turn us, fast forward around about- It's 27 minutes. 27 minutes, probably (laughs) fast forward another 10 to 15. No, don't, Matt, promise me it's going to be really interesting. So um, make sure you stay tuned. I'm going to sit back. uh, Now you could ask questions otherwise. In another room. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so the way that the stomach develops embryologically in the early, so it's as I said, it's foregut early, very early on. So you know, I'm just getting water. I I'm, I'm not still going in anywhere. the room. So pretty much at four weeks post um, fertilization, all your gut tube is is just a big long tube that starts in your mouth and ends at the cloaca. Simple as that. Quite easily, quite easy. Nope. I, what do you mean cloaca? We're not a bird. Well, at this point. I think we do this every episode. Well, you, you tell me that we're a bird at some <laughs> point during our embryological so, development. Um, focusing just on the foregut, and the foregut's basically, if you want to be technical, the mouth to the point where the liver buds off. Okay, that's when to be technical. Liver but bud. Liver bud. What week are we or at? Week four. All right. Okay, but at this so no p- stomach at week four. Not yet. We're just a tube. Or the gastrointestinal. We're just tractors. a mouth to cloaca tube. That's right. Well. In terms of the digestive tract, not the whole body. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Um, so, coming through the now developing diaphragm is just a long cylinder. Okay. This is where the stomach's going to be. Now, in terms of what's connecting it, there's a, a bit of uh, tissue or a sheath of tissue that kind of connects um, at the back wall and just anchors it to the back of where your vertebrae is going to develop. So, if you so have the a tube, is anchored tube, to your vertebrae. Yeah. Well, almost there. Just call it dorsal wall, right. dorsal abdominal wall. I'll make sure I do that. Okay, so you've got your tube. What? How would you describe it? You got kind of t- mesenchyme, or it's going to be um, basically uh, cells that produce peritoneum that tissue, wraps yeah. it like a cling wrap wrap, All right. and it goes around it and then anchors it to the back wall. Okay, like a like a dorsal fin of a fish, it comes together. Yep. And anchors to the back wall. Yeah. Now what te- did you call it? The, dors- the dorsal... We could call it, at this point, the dorsal mesentery. Okay. Okay. So all your gut tube has that dorsal wall. Okay. Now, only kind of the stomach and a bit below it has a ventral, wall, ventral mesentery as well, which goes forward to the front abdominal wall. Like a... Like a... a front fin. Front fin. Yeah. So what are now- they called? Ventral fins? Maybe. You have dorsal, ventral, yeah. And that to the front wall of the body. That's right. That's where the stomach is. So that you got, your stomach is just this suspended pipe with these two front um, mesentery front connections. That's, right. Okay? That's all you need to know at this point. 
Now, the first thing that starts to happen is the back portion of the pipe starts to get bigger. It starts to elongate. It starts to grow quicker than the front pipe. Right. So it starts to now bulge out. Okay? And this is going to be the start, the precursor of your greater curvature of your stomach. All right. So instead of just a nice cylinder, now it's coming to become more bulky at the dorsal wall. Okay? Now, while that's happening, it starts to turn 90 degrees. Why is it turning? In a clockwise direction. Do we know why? Is this um, just a gene yeah, it would influence? Be, it would be, yeah. Uh, whether the unequal growth at the dorsal wall causes it to, to turn, not sure. But it, it just starts to turn in a 90 degree clockwise fashion if and, you were to be looking down on it. And so because of that, because the greater curvature... So it's a longitudinal it, rotation. So me. because the greater curvature was being formed at the back yep. and then it turns clockwise, so towards the left... left yep. The greater curvature is now where it should be, which is most laterally. Yep. Okay. That's all right. You and may proceed. And just while we're there, at this point when it was still a cylinder, on the left side and the right side is the vagus nerve that's just sitting on either side of it. Okay? On both sides? On both sides. So you have the vagus nerve supplying the left side of the tube and the right vagus supplying the right side of the tube. But as it turns 90 degrees, okay, the left vagus now moves around to the anterior surface, okay? And the right turns to the posterior surface. So now in the adult, because you'll, if you look at the adult human um, uh, nervous supply, you'll go, why is it called the left vagus if it's on the front? Gotcha. And, but this is the reason why. Because of embryology. Yeah. All right. Okay. So now we have this excessive large curvature that's happening on the left side and now a much smaller in comparison, smaller curvature. And this is still four weeks or five weeks? Oh, now it's probably moved into five, six plus weeks. All right, now what? And so now you've got these two little curvatures on either side. So that's going to be the greater curvature and lesser curvature. Now the next thing that happens, I'll I'll just um, forget at this point in time the two uh, mesenteries because they become important in a second. Um, but so the they're still connected. They're still connected. But wait a so they were connected at the back and the front. Yeah. So where are they connected now? They're still there, but they're stretched in different ways. Oh, so the back one would be more affiliated with the left side of the stomach and the front to the right yeah. hand side of the stomach. But because the dorsal wall, which was connected with that um, mesentery, yeah. it's now been stretched by that unequal growth and then it's turned so much, that mesentery becomes really long and floppy. Oh. Which becomes important in a second. Long and floppy. Yeah. Right. Whereas the ventral one, okay, that was connected to the front wall, yeah, the liver has grown into it. And it, is it so the encased? Liver, is the yeah, the liver takes up pretty much all that ves- ventral mesentery. So where's the liver on our right or our left? The right. On the right. And so as that turned clockwise, it pulled it towards the right yeah. and then the liver grew into it and That's is right. now wrapped in that yep. bit of mesentery. Correct. Okay, hopefully everyone's getting this. At least the people on YouTube are getting it because we're filming this. All right, so the last thing you just need to know in terms of the main embryology is now what the liver, sorry, now that what the stomach does is now if you were to put a axis through it from anterior posterior, so the front to back, yep, it would then turn on a 90 degrees again clockwise, I think, um, turn. Yep. Which means that now... The right-hand side of the stomach is towards the roof. Yeah, that's right. So the pylorus, which was now the most um, distal part of the tube, yep. now turns right and goes up. Oh. And the other one comes to the left. 
Which is why the stomach... Which is the cardiac. Yeah. So the cardiac portion... So does that mean... So in regards to where the cardiac region and the pylorus region is to one another... Yeah. They are nearly on the same plane? They're getting close. Wow, okay. But that's just... But that's the J shape. Yeah, that's right. And that's why it ranges the way it does. Interesting. So you've got two forms of rotation there. You've got a longitudinal rotation, 90 degrees, and you've got an anterior-posterior rotation. And the anterior-posterior rotation, 90 degrees, is why you get something that was once more distally or inferior now moving higher up and to the right, whereas the one that was always higher kind of now moves slightly lower to the left. So do we know if... So does it happen in that order? Yeah. Okay. And the reason why it does the other rotation is because the mid-gut which is all your intestines, goes out of the body, yeah. rotates. Out of the body? Yeah, it goes out. What do you mean out? So it comes out through the abdominal wall and what? sitting outside the body while it's doing its rotation because there's not enough space in the abdomen what? for it to develop. No. Yeah. What week's this? Again, it's probably all between four and ten. So wait a minute. What? So the intestines yeah. leave the body, yeah. do a bit of twisting and turning because there's no room inside to twist Correct. and turn. And then come back in. That's right. And How so, does it get out and back in? What's pushing it out and pulling it back in again? Uh, I'm not sure what pushes it out, but I think there is part of that dorsal mesentery sucks it back in. So and so for some children, some neonates, it doesn't ever go back in. All right, that was going to be my question. Yeah. So yeah. there are conditions. Obviously, yeah. there's conditions at every step of the way here. Yeah. So and that's where the stomach develops outside of the peritoneum. Not the stomach, the intestine. Uh, intestine, sorry, outside yeah. the peritoneum. Yeah. Not the peritoneum outside the abdominal wall. So it's still generally racked wrapped up in a sack. Yeah. So you'll have this herniated sack of tissue. Wow. There's probably different levels of severity. Do but you know what that's called? Uh, Happened uh, to a friend of mine. It's got a... Um, pr- type of seal or something. Yeah, something yeah. seal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got a big bulge of tissue with intestines in it that's kind of coming out where your belly button kind of would be. And so the surgeon, if it's not too severe, they'd kind of just reopen it, pop it back in. Wow. Okay. We done with so embryology? The, the way that that rotates... Yeah. Sorry, is the reason why the stomach rota- <laughs> rotates. Oh, that's cool. All right. But let me finish the last point, and this becomes a very important. This will be 10 minutes of embryology. That's yeah. okay. I've enjoyed it. So Nobody else would have, all but that, I've enjoyed it. All that floppy dorsal mesentery, remember that was anchored, Which was my nickname in high school. Which was anchored to the back wall, yeah. remember? Was stretched, and then it was turned. You got all this floppiness. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That then is sitting in the front wall. Yeah. That becomes your greater momentum. Which is that apron that that's sits right, over your right. bowel. And so because you've kind of got a double and up, it's actually got four bits of tissue anchored together. And where it flops over, it kind of sits on top of the first bit of intestine that comes past it, which is your transverse colon, and flops over the top and that becomes a connection there. All right. And if you want to be technical, so the people who really want anatomy, um, this becomes a ligament, which we call the gastrocolic ligament, which connects the stomach... I think you're going to do crickets. Um, no, this is very interesting. This is good. Which does the... Uh, uh, no, I lost my train of thought. You've been uh, useful. Uh, it, it becomes... A, instead of the greater mentum, it's now broken into two parts. One's called the gastrocolic ligament, which connects the stomach... Part of the stomach greater curvature to the transverse colon. Now you're becoming boring. And then the other part, which is a, a structure developed in that dorsal mesentery behind the stomach, was the spleen. Okay. Okay, so the spleen developed in that... Um, what do you call it, dorsal fin, Yeah. Um, developed in there. And as it developed, it went with the stomach and turned, kind of sat posteriorly to it. And then you have that last part of the, uh, the 
greater omentum, which is known as the gastrosplenic ligament. And so that's why the spleen is sort of a, to the left, but a bit behind the stomach as yeah. well. And to go with your blood vessels in that greater omentum is the two blood vessels being the gastromental or gastroepiplotic. <laughs> it was yeah. worth it just for the mispronunciation of gastroepiploic. And then finally, oh, the, okay. the, ventral, a bit more, everyone. the ventral mesentery. Remember yeah, that one to yeah, the front wall? Yeah, yeah the what, one that covered the liver. What grew up in it? The liver. Right. Yeah. And so the connection from, which was still that ventral mesentery, to, from the stomach to the liver is the lesser omentum. Wow. Okay. Less exciting than the greater omentum. No, this is awesome. Why? Um, uh, well, no, I don't think I'll go down that path. It's just a, <laughs> it's just a communication because there is a sac still behind the stomach and liver, which they call a lesser sac. Um, the only way which you, is your nickname in high school. <laughs> the only way you can get into there is through just on the lower region of the lesser. Why momentum. would you need to get into there surgically? Why? Um, oh, good point. I've maybe, never heard someone say, I've got to go into surgery because they've got to get into my maybe, lesser sac. Maybe bleeds, maybe infections. I'm not sure. There's, right. there's, there, there are regions, reasons. Um, the final important point, surgical point. You haven't made is, them all? <laughs> is that, that that blood vessel you spoke about that went to, up to the liver, which is a hepatic artery. Yeah. And what's the other blood vessel that goes up to the, the liver that's important? The hepatic artery. That's one. What's the venous one? Oh, the portal vein. Portal vein. Yeah. So that's two blood vessels up. Yeah. And you've got one structure coming back. Yeah. Which is the uh, bile duct. Yeah. A bile, sorry. Yeah, Those yeah. three structures or the portal hepatis are in the lower margin of the the lesser omentum. Okay. And so surgically it becomes important. If you want to take out part of your um, liver or maybe a gallbladder removal, they clamp those blood vessels there. Wow. To stop bleeding. Okay. All right. That was good. That was, look. I know, I know it's a lot, no, but, it, but it makes sense. Press the applause button again, Matt. That's enough. And the, that was too and much from, applause. And, and from the liver to the front wall, which is the last part of that ventral mesentery, is the falciform ligament. Of course. Everyone needs to know about the falciform <laughs> ligament. Now I'm done. Whew, okay, everybody. That was a little bit longer. All right. Um, you can't rush embryology. Now you can press play again now. All right. <laughs> So I think we should, I think it was a very good job. We should start talking about the histology. So the cells inside the stomach because they start to release all the products, chemicals, enzymes, hormones. But we should talk about the fact that the gastro... In each four parts? Yes. Okay, brilliant. But the, but the gastrointestinal tract itself from mouth to anus have the same four oh, major okay. layers to yeah. it. Because it is one pipe, as you nicely demonstrated, that it is one big tube. It's made up of four layers which just vary slightly depending on where we're talking about, whether it's the esophagus or the stomach or the smaller large intestines or the rectum or anus. It just changes a little bit. So basically if you went from the esophagus, which is like 25 centimetres long, yep. all the way through seven, seven metres of tract. Seven metres, is it? About that. Okay. Um, to, to the final part, which is the rectum, pulled it all out and made a big long line. Okay, and, painful. And cut it Oof. in a cross-sectional Yep. and was to look into the pipe. Look down the anus. The, the wall of the the tract yep. would have four layers to it. That's right. Even though you put up five fingers, it'll no, have no, four. No, no, tuck it away. <laughs> four layers. <laughs> all right, these are the layers. If we start from the hollow lumen, so the hollow where inside. Where the food would be. Where the food would be all the way out to where the connective tissue is. You've got the mucosal layer. Then you've got the submucosal layer. Then you've got the muscle layer, known as the muscularis layer. And then you've got the connective tissue serosal slash adventitia layer. 
Okay. So we're going to just focus on the stomach. Yep. Um, let's go outside in because then we can finish with the epithelia and cells inside and talk about their function. All right. Right? Yep. All right. So Matt already spoke about the mesentery and the connective tissue on the outside. Yeah. Perfect. So it's parieta, sorry, visceral peritoneum. Yep. So that's part of the serosa. And the whole stomach sitting within the abdominal cavity. So it's called an intraperitoneal. Perfect. Organ. So we've ticked that outer layer off. Then we go a little bit in and we've got a muscular layer called the muscularis externa. Now for the whole GIT, there's two layers here. We've got a circular layer. Oh, sorry. We've got a longitudinal layer and we have a circular layer. Now in the stomach, you've got an additional layer. You've got a longitudinal layer. You've got a circular layer, but you also have an oblique layer. So simply put, okay. the three layers of muscle tissue, longitudinal means it goes the length of the tube. Which, right? will, which will shorten it? Which shortens the tube. Yep. The circular layer goes around the tube. Which constricts or dilates the tube. Correct. And then the oblique layer goes obliquely or horizontal across the tube. Only in the stomach. Only in the stomach. Because the stomach is a dilated sort of irregular tube. This oblique layer helps the stomach fold in upon itself. Jackknifes, basically. So anywhere Cause, else... Because the function of the stomach is churning mashing, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it doesn't just sit as a pit, right? Whatever's in it, this is why we get, some of us, get reflux is because if the stomach just sat there and didn't contract, then there'd be no reason why acid would move back up the esophagus. But it does because the stomach's throwing things around all over the place because it's jackknifing because of the oblique layer. Now, in the rest of the tube, the rest of the GIT, like Matt said... It doesn't have the oblique. It doesn't have the oblique. And so the whole purpose of the long, longitudinal and circular is peristalsis. The shortening of the tube moves things along and the constriction of the tubes segregates things. And so together, when you've got shortening, uh, lengthening, constricting and dilating, it moves things through and that's peristalsis. Now in the stomach, you've got that happening with the oblique flicking things all over the place. I wonder if that William Beaumont figured that out. Maybe. I don't know. He would have seen that things would have been... Flung all thrown over. around. Yeah. He actually uh, also said that he massaged the um, pylorus. Um, he would get bile, come back up into it. Really? Yeah. The pylorus? Oh, you know, the first bit of the duodenum pylorus, if he massaged that area, yeah, then bile would come back up. Why? Because it, it relaxed it. Yeah, somehow probably produced it's a reflux re- retro sort of per, uh, peristalsis. Interesting. Interesting. He did a lot. Poor guy. He did. This poor guy who's getting his... Pylorus massaged. <laughs> People pay a lot of money for that. So we've got, um, so we've done the connective tissue, the serosal layer. Then we've gone in three muscle layers. One in. Can I? Uh, oh, I didn't finish with the muscle layers because oh, yeah. there's there's a, a nervous system inside this muscle layer called the myenteric plexus or is it Auerbach's? Auerbach's yeah. myenteric plexus? Something like that. All right, so the myenteric plexus is the intrinsic nervous, one part of the intrinsic nervous system. There's two intrinsic nervous systems, the myenteric plexus and the submucosal, which we'll get to next. So basically, this is nervous innovation that tells this muscle to contract and relax. And interestingly, the way it does it is through the release of serotonin, uh, vasoactive intestinal protein, substance P, nitric oxide and acetylcholine. I think they're the major neurotransmitters. And interestingly, they basically tell the muscle in front to relax and the muscle behind to con- contract. Right. Is this probably all paracrinal? This is throughout the entire... Yeah, yeah, this is all paracrinal. So the muscle tissue is going to release hormones depending on stretch and... Con- uh, and so it's uh, all kind of reflex? It's all reflexive. That's why it's intrinsic. 
Yep. Amazing. Amazing. It's beautiful. Um, then we go to the, oh, what you wanted to say something about uh, the muscle layer. I was just going to say um, some differences between animals. Um, mm. Some animals will have a really exaggerated uh, muscle layer. Like and, me. And um, so, so it seems to be more in amphibians and reptiles, um, but also to a lesser degree birds. And they call this region of the stomach the gizzard. Okay. And this seems so wait, wait, wait. So they've got a stomach. Yeah, they've got the stomach. But there's one part that's more elongated or within the stomach. May more like it's more concentrated in one region. Is it like another fundus or something? Kind of like that, yeah. It, but it's non, and when, we, when you get to the histology, it'll make sense. It's non um, glandular, so it doesn't do any secretions. It's no mucus or enzymes or anything. Probably a bit of mucus, but it doesn't do the digestive. It's all about muscle in these ro- in these locations, and um, what happens here usually is it does extra physical, mechanical digestion. And so some animals, in this gizzard part, will actually swallow things to put into the gizzard, like rocks, stones. Because I know chickens do this. You got chickens. The chickens do this. Yeah, they've got another area called a crop, which is a, probably more of an esophagus, which they store food temporarily for. Really? But, but they can do that grind in there as well. But it's also, for birds, important for their hatchlings. They can vomit it back up and give them right, partly so, digestive food. So these birds that ingest, or animals that ingest these rocks in the gizzard yeah. for this mechanical digestion, what happens with the rocks? Do they I think they out? Or? I think eventually they, they do, yeah. But they, but they can actually decide upon what kind of rocks they need. So they might <laughs> they might go for more heavier rocks or more kind of Granular. grainy. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. So it kind of sits, sits in there and then it grinds it up. Have you ever given it a shot? I haven't personally. But then you go to the like the animals that spend much more time in you know plant digestion, like the herbivores, cows and stuff. Yeah, like ruminants. Like, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, their gizzard would be more of a big vat of just... Gizzard? Yeah. Like my favourite com- comedian, Eddie Gizzard. Eddie Gizzard. Yeah. So they just have a huge... Ex- <laughs> not the one I wanted, but... Um, they have a big, huge, extended, probably non-glandular gizzard kind of thing, which is just about a vat of storing the food to uh, allow, and in this case, the bacteria to break it down. So the stomach's... The cows have four stomachs. No, they've only got one true one. The rest are just different dilations of the esophagus, technically. So they've got three esophaguses, esophagi? Yeah. Esophagi and one stomach. Correct. That's a more interesting fact than four stomachs, I think. Mm. Okay. Um, all right. So we did the muscle layer. Yep. We did the intrinsic myenteric plexus within there. Uh, then we go down to the layer. Again, next layer closest inside the hollow lumen is called the submucosal plexus. Uh, so it's just called the submucosa, which is connective tissue. Um, blood this, vessels. Yeah, but this connective tissue has blood vessels, nerve fibers, lymphatics. Yeah. Um, now the nerve fibers that are there is called the submucosal plexus and their primary role, they're basically an extension of the myenteric plexus moving through and they play a role with innovating, sending a signal to the next layer, which is the most internal layer, which is the mucosal layer, which is epithelia, and it tells those glands to release substances. Okay. So that's what the uh, submucosal plexus does, which means in the most internal layer, the mucosa, it's epithelia, and it's simple columnar epithelial. And, and Go on. And so this is where all the digestive processes occur. 
I mean, yeah. in terms of chem- chemically. Yeah, this is where it's all produced. And so the way I like to talk about it with my students is that obviously epithelia lines every hollow organ within the body. And so the great thing with epithelia is that form equals function. So you can tell whether it's squamous, which is squished or stratified, many layers or columnar or cuboidal. And it gives you an indication as to what it does. So if you've got something that's cuboidal or columnar, it means it has uh, a larger intracellular region, which means it has more organelles inside, which means it produces stuff. And often when it's columnar, it produces a lot of things like mucus. So often columnar cells are mucus producing cells because it's got all the internal structures to do it. And so that's basically what these cells do in the stomach. But what you'll find is that these epithelial cells, these columnar cells are arranged in what's called gastric pits. And so they're deep in what we call invaginations of the stomach. Uh, And it's also this mucosa that produces um, the, if you look at the stomach, it looks like, uh, how would you explain it? It's like folded the internal structure oh. it's called rugae, rugae but it's all folded so that's allow allows you to discern if you were to look inside so let's say you were doing an endoscopy put a, a tube or a camera down someone's esophagus and one of the th- first things you'd notice once you're in the stomach is the rugae yeah and that gives the ability for the stomach to expand and the rugae is because of the submucosa and the way that so the submucosa invaginates and then the epithelia itself has gastric pits. And depending on where we look at, depends on what cells are present within these gastric pits. So remember, Matt said the first part of the stomach is the cardia, then the roof is the fundus, then the body is the body, and then you've got the pylorus at the end. So we can have a look now and talk about what type of cell types are in each. In each part. And that's why it's segmented in those four ways, because they're histologically different? Correct. Okay. Now, generally speaking, if you look at a gastric pit... You've got cells that are present right at the very bottom and the cell types actually change depending on where you're looking at the gastric pits. So they, the cells change depending on the gastric pit and also the location of the stomach. Mm-hmm. So a general gastric pit right at the bottom, what you're going to have predominantly are going to be the neuroendocrine cells, cells that release hormones, hormones that tell the stomach what to do and other parts of the GRT what to do. Because they're hormones, they jump into the bloodstream so they have a systemic effect. As we move up next, we've got what's called chief cells. Do you know what chief cells produce? Sounds like they've got an important job. They do. They produce something called pepsinogen. Inactive form of pepsin. Yeah. If it ends in, like I tell my students, if it ends in O-G-E-N, it means it's stored and inactive and it needs to be activated. Or to generate. Oh, okay. I like that. And to activate it, you've got to chop off the O-G-E-N. And what does it in the stomach? Hydrochloric acid. So the chief cells don't just produce pepsinogen, which turns to pepsin, and pepsin is a protease, which means it chops proteins up. This is how the stomach chemically breaks down proteins, right? Uh, It also produces lipase, which is another chemical scissors which break down fats, but its role is minimal. So the stomach doesn't play a big role in fat digestion, but it plays a role. Okay. Next cell group up is going to be the parietal cells. And they produce hydrochloric acid and intrinsic factor. So it's thought that the, the first port point of evolution for the stomach to become a more of a storage point for digestion, the, the, one of the first secretions was HCL. Hydrochloric. Because it's to prevent putrification or you know, an overgrowth of bacteria. Because yeah, if, you, if, you, if you were to eat a big chunk of food, like dead meat, 
Dead meat, as opposed to living meat. Well, you know, some animals would probably eat meat while the animal's still dying. Fair, fair. got a whole lot of rotting flesh that's going to be in this part of your digestive tract. You make it sound so appetizing. So you're probably good to put some acid with it to kill the bacteria off or at least slow it down its growth. I think that's an important point. A lot of people think that the acid is a requirement for protein digestion and it's not. I wonder if it came second. So probably to stop the bacteria overgrowing and then it also denatured the the, um, protein. the protein. Well, the thing is this. That's a good point. So hydrochloric... So if you were to get an egg, which egg white is basically protein, crack an egg in vinegar, which is acid, and you'll the egg after a given amount of time will look like it's cooked mm. because the protein denatured. in the egg is denatured. And that's all the heat does. All the heat does in a pan is denature proteins. All the acid does is denature proteins. They're doing the exact same thing. It's just through different mechanisms, right? So... Hydrochloric acid denatures proteins. And what that means is, this is the way I like to explain it to my students. Proteins are balls of amino acids, right? They're like, uh, what do you call it? A, a ball a, of wool. A ball of wool. You've got this big, long bit of string, which are amino acids, but it's folded up into a ball of wool, right? If you were to get scissors and try and chop up that ball of wool, it's really hard. You want to unravel that ball of wool and then chop it up segmentally. So the hydrochloric acid unravels the ball of wool or the protein. So it's a nice long linear molecule. And then the pepsin comes along and chops it up. And that's great. So this synergistic sort of effect that the two have. But you can still break the proteins up without the hydrochloric acid. And so the hydrochloric acid, like you said, plays a a a twofold role, which is killing off bacterial viruses or any invading pathogens that might be. Because think about it. And it's probably more for carnivores. Probably more for carnivores, but you know, because the herbivores don't really have this kind of true stomach. They've got more, yeah, these the vats, but they need more longer intestines to do the fermentation. And I'd assume those vats require significant amount of bacteria. Yes, right. Yeah, and don't get us wrong. There's bacteria in our stomach. There's millions of bacteria in our stomach. So it, it's not a sterile environment. So we are bacteria that can survive the pH one to three of our stomach. And there's other bacteria which shouldn't survive there, but do, like Helicobacter pylori, which is the major cause of peptic ulcers. Yeah. Um, and I think also just the um, when you have a uh, food poisoning from like a, a bacteria, I think the bacteria can actually uh, put a capsule around themselves or somehow get through it without yeah. being killed off. And then they start to grow. So whether it's E. coli or salmonella, those ones can then start colonizing your intestines and then that's where you get your food poisoning mm. so they can get through but by and large i think it's pretty efficient at killing it is pretty efficient so what do we say we said right at the bottom neuroendocrine cells release hormones then we've got chief cells that release uh pepsinogen lipase which need to be acted by uh, acted upon by the next group of cells above which are the parietal cells they produce hydrochloric acid that activates the pepsinogen into pepsin the molecular scissors for protein but i said it also releases intrinsic factor yeah so do you know what that does Something with vitamin B12. Yeah, basically helps us absorb vitamin B12 in the gut. So without intrinsic factor, B12 can't be absorbed. And we need B12 for blood, right? So I think also nerve uh, myelination. Correct. So if you want to make new red blood cells, you need folate, iron, B12, right? They're the three major things that you need. And amino acids, obviously, but you're going to have amino acids 
Folate you can't make from the environment, so you need to ingest it. B12 you need to absorb it, uh, and iron you need to ingest it as well. So all these things. That's why food is so important when it comes to red blood cell production. If you don't have the intrinsic factor, you don't absorb the B12, you don't make the red blood cells, and you can get a type of anemia, which is called pernicious anemia. All right, and so these are intrinsic factor produced by the parietal cells, which also produce the acid. Then the next group of cells above that, at the neck of these gastric pits, called mucus secreting cells or mucus neck cells. And it's a less viscous sort of fluid that's being produced. They last around about a week before they're they're replenished. And then the next group of cells right at the top, right at the surface, are peripheral mucus cells. And they produce a more viscous mucus that contains bicarbonate ions. Why do we need bicarbonate ions? Especially there. It's the opposite of an acid. So it would neutralize the acid? That's right. But, yep. ju- but just on the wall, not, not, it doesn't re- release the bicarbonate into the whole stomach wall, into the whole stomach contents, right? Because the mucus is so viscous, the bicarbonate sits within that viscous mucus that basically just lines the surface of the mucosa or the epithelia. So that when that acid bubbles up, I shouldn't say bubbles up, but actually gets released and moves up through the gastric pits and comes out to start to digest all the components within the hollow lumen of the stomach, if that acid were to touch the surface of the stomach it's going to not digest itself. That's right. its whole purpose. Yeah. Now you can have, okay, so let's now go and have a look at, oh, should I talk a little bit more about the neuroendocrine cells and the hormones they release? Well, let's move through those four regions of the stomach and just tell the listeners how, what cells are where. Yeah. Oh. So the cardia, which is the small little region, which apparently is only really found in mammals, is located just where the esophagus comes in. Yeah. What, so there's all those cells that you just described. What do you actually find more abundantly there? Mucus secreting cells. So it's really just producing mucus. Yeah, same with the fundus, mainly mucus cells as well. Okay, and then the majority of the stomach is the body. Yeah. And so they have all those gastric pits that you spoke about. Correct. Okay, and then you move down. Which have predominantly parietal and chief cells. So the digestive stuff, right? The acid and the the. That's where the real crux of the digest chemical digestion occurs yeah and then you move down into the pylorus which is the final distal part or inferior part yeah and is there anything different there yeah a lot of neuroendocrine cells there um and what's called g cells which i forgot to talk about as well which are neuroendocrine cells there's there's actually a bunch of neuroendocrine cells right so you've got uh g cells which produce something called gastrin you've got uh ecl cells which are enterochromaffin like cells and they produce histamine. You've got D cells that produce somatostatin. Um, and oh you've got a whole bunch. But they're the major ones. Okay. So basically at the antrum or pylorus, you've got these neuroendocrine cells. You've also got a scattering of these neuroendocrine cells throughout the body as well. And the whole purpose of these cells is to release hormones into the bloodstream that either stimulate or inhibit digestion. Yep. And so gastrin is a very important one released by G cells, G gastrin. When gastrin's released, it stimulates parietal cells to release acid. So it promotes digestion. Okay. Right? At the same time, gastrin, when it's released, stimulates ACL cells, so enterochromaffin-like cells, to release histamine. And histamine also stimulates parietal cells to release acid. Great. The D cells that release somatostatin inhibits it all. Oh. I Basically, somatostatin, statin, static, stop, somatostatin, somato, body. It basically tells everything to stop. It's like the major inhibitory hormone of the body. Wow. So I can't think of one process that somatostatin activates 
I'm sure there is one, but I always think of it as though it's the major inhibitory molecule. So it will stop histamine, it will stop um, the gastrin, and it will also stop parietal cells. So because this is located right at the pylorus, which you would assume that the majority of stomach contents would continually be sitting in that region, it gives the stomach a good idea of what's in the contents continuously, right? Yeah. And so it can constantly feed back through this endocrinal or this communication system just to either go back up and say, you need more acid, you need more protein, enzymes, or you can stop now. Yeah, so there's feedback mechanisms in which the acid... If you start to produce heaps of acid because you've got a lot of proteins, for example, coming down, um, that stimulates the D cells to release somatostatin to inhibit any more acid production. Yeah. So you've got negative feedback there. Um, and but then slowly just squeezes it out into the duodenum. That's correct, yeah. And you've also got vagal innervation and the vagus nerve inhibits D cells and activates G cells and ECL cells and parietal cells. Yep. Um, so acetylcholine plays a role as well so on the m1 m3 i'm quite sure it would be so did you figure that out no okay um so they're the cells that primarily in the pylorus the antrum this is important because if somebody has a helicobacter pylori infection bacterial infection it tends to infect the pylorus the pyloric antrum more so than any other place and what that means is the d cells the somatostatin producing cells die off you have this inflammatory response. The, stel- the cells that are there start to die off and there's no inhibition, which means the parietal cells located in the rest of the stomach, the, um, the body, for example, continue to produce unimpeded, unmitigated, uninhibited acid. And then that overproduction of acid kicks homeostasis out of whack. You produce too much acid in the stomach. It starts to overwhelm the bicarbonate that's there and you start to digest it and you produce peptic ulcers. And an ulceration is when the acid starts to eat through not just the mucosal layer, but it can also eat through the submucosal layer. Can even go even further. How was that discovered? So there was a, an Australian, and I don't know why I'm blanking on his name. Do you remember his name? So while you're thinking, yeah, M1 receptors are important for saliva glands but yep. also gastric acid secretion and m3 I have, well i'm just giving you the okay, G1. okay. i'm pretty sure m3 are parietal okay okay we'll, we'll see keep going with the um uh anyway there was an australian and i and i'm embarrassed that i can't remember his name and i'm sure somebody will correct me um but basically he won the nobel prize because he thought okay everyone thought that peptic ulcers uh were going to be caused due to stress spicy foods things like that now, those things may exacerbate an existing ulcer, but they don't produce it. And he knew this. He's a very smart man. He's still practicing medicine as a researcher. Really? Now. Yep. Uh, and basically, he goes, you know what? I think it's caused by a bacteria. I think it's caused by a bacteria called Helicobacter pylori, H. pylori. He took a vial of H. pylori and drunk it down. He gave himself an infection. He gave himself a peptic ulcer. Then he swallowed some antibiotics, destroyed the H. pylori, healed his peptic ulcer, Nobel Prize. That's brilliant. I mean, I wouldn't do it myself. Wouldn't you? If you were that sure, would you? Look, if you're that sure and confident, good on you. I'm going to now check to see what his name is because I feel... uh, Oh, Barry. Barry. Do you remember? By the way, you're sure right. M3 is also stomach. So we're both right. Look at that. Yeah, mainly me, but that's okay. (laughs) Now, 
you keep Barry talking. Marshall. Barry Marshall, thank you very much. Legend. Barry Marshall is a legend. Okay. So, that's H. pylori. Now, reflux, if we want to talk a little bit about disease state, is he still practicing medicine? 68 years old. Yeah, I think he's still practicing in like South Australia, Western Australia. Western Australia, I think. Western Australia. Um, shout out to Barry Marshall. What a legend. Um, you, can, you can jump on this podcast anytime you want, Barry. Um, <laughs> he may, uh, he may uh, very nicely decline. So, reflux, where you got the contents of your stomach regurgitating up from the stomach through into the esophagus. All right. You nicely stated that there is a demarcation point between the type of epithelia at the esophagus and the type of epithelia at the stomach. You've got stratified squamous epithelia at the esophagus because... Of abrasion? To stop abrasion. You've got many layers of squished cells. So it's going to stop any cutting from food because like you, a lot of people don't chew. Yeah, they swallow right. like a duck. Well, I, scrapes the I swallow wall. rocks. You do, and then you jump up and down to digest your food. And by the way, the gizzards yes. also have the same... Cell type. Stratified squamous. Because yeah, there's a lot of abrasion going Smart, on. smart. But the stomach doesn't. It's non-glandular. Um, okay, so here we go. So the stomach is glandular. Simple columnar produces a mucus, but the esophagus doesn't. And the demarcation point is the lower esophageal sphincter, which in my case is a pathetic sphincter because it allows for contents to reflux up. Now there's a couple of important... So is it the sphincter or is it your diaphragm? Yeah, so that's the or point I was going to make. Or is it the angle... All of it, my man, all of it. So the uh, the diaphragm plays a really important role in maintaining a uh, tone within the esophagus. Right? Is Lower this a so- physiological sphincter or is this an anatomical sphincter? I'd say it's anatomical because it's got to do with the curvature of the esophagus going through the diaphragm, the hiatal portion of the diaphragm over the esophagus, and also has to do with the thickening of the circular smooth muscle mm-hmm. at the esophagus. All three of these things play a role in reducing so the reflux. So the, the oblique nature of how it comes into the stomach, Yeah, what it should normally do is the superior aspect should depress down mm. and the inferior part should go up, which yeah. kind of seals it off. Correct. Plus the sphincter around it should, by its function, kind of contract it off. And like then the diaphragm, up. which is kind of like a door... Yeah, should also do a bit of constriction, but all three in you have failed. <laughs> yeah, yes, thank you. Yeah, so what I take sometimes is a PPI, a proton pump inhibitor. What's a proton? <laughs> uh, what, sub-anatomical? Yeah, just generally speaking. Um, no, no, I'm not talking, I'm not talking, well, yeah, no. What's in the a, atom? Well, yeah, okay, it's just the, a, a the, proton the, is just the a charge, positive. Yeah. The plus thing? Yeah, good opposed job. to the electron, which is the, the negative? Cool. Glad I asked Matt. Chemistry is, wasn't my strong point. A proton is the positive charge of an atom. Okay. So a single positive charge because is Because hydrogen only has one, it's called a, also called a proton, right? Correct. And so hydrogen is the part in the hydrochloric acid that gives you the low pH or the acidness of it because uh, it's a proton donor. Is that correct? Well, it is a proton. <laughs> <laughs> so it donates itself. Um, so all pHs is the the H means hydrogen. hydrogen. Yeah. The P means the power. Mike has done uh, fifty three <laughs> videos on this in many different forms at different time lengths. Look, so pH <laughs> is important, Matt. Right now, the pH of the stomach is between one to three, and that's because of the pumping out of, of the pro- parietal cells of hydrogen with chloride. Uh, uh, well, chloride comes differently, doesn't it, from somewhere else? Yeah, it's the same cell, but they come out and they come together. 
So hydrogen gets pushed into the lumen and potassium gets sucked back in. Yeah, it's an exchange between potassium and hydrogen. So the and ATP this is, pump. And this is a pump? Yeah, ATP. And this is what you're blocking with a proton EPI pump inhibitor. inhibitor. Yep. Such as name? Uh, Myprazole. Okay. Yeah, Myprazole is one of the I most... I think it's like top four, at least well, in Take Australia. It. Yeah. Yes, because... So, the amount of scripts my, I fill. The, <laughs> the drug that I have to take now is yeah. number one and two. Oh, what's that? Statin. Nice. And then you're, the three, you're in three and four. What's oh, the second? Two statins. Oh, that's how good Matt's heart is, everyone. <laughs> oh, this, this, podcast is, this podcast is slowly turning into uh, our ailments. It's called Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Ailments. Yeah. Um, what else? Is that it? We've spoken for an hour and ten minutes and I want to go On play some tennis. Um, was there something else we're going to say? We're, I think we covered most of it. I think so, so. Physiological aspects done, anatomy's yep. done. Yeah. Um, hist- even histological aspects done. Yeah. Comparative anatomy's done. Yeah. And your favourite embryology's done. Perfect. Oh, no. Have, you got some questions from the listeners or on your Instagram. Yeah. There was some... We, I think we'll do this more frequently now. We'll ask we people questions ahead yeah. of time. If you want to ask me questions, go onto my Instagram which is just Dr. Mike Todorovich. So D-R-M-I-K-E-T-O-D-O-R-O-V-I-C. Go onto Instagram, send me a message, ask me a question. I'm happy to answer it on the podcast. I will ask a question on my Instagram, letting everyone know what the topic will be and you can ask a question. Had a couple of questions, but I think I an- I think we answered them all. Well, there was one that said, um, how does Tums and antacid work? Go on. No, I think you should do that. Okay, cool. So the antacids are the PPI. Well... Antacid means antiacid, the opposite of an acid. And the opposite of an acid is a base. Bicarbonate is the physiological base that we produce to neutralize the acid. And medically, we've hijacked bicarbonate in tablet form, produce more bicarbonate, you buffer out more hydrogen. And that's what these antacids do. They're basically bicarbonate ions, right? Yeah. Is that Tums too? I've never taken Tums. I think it's just the same thing, but it might be in tablets. So basically, you take bicarbonate, it neutralizes the acid. That's it because... I think excessive amounts of this can actually cause you to get an um, acid-base imbalance. Correct. So you become more alkalinic. Yep. Yeah, you don't want to take too much of it, that's for sure. Uh, another question you had was um, why when a person gets anxiety, do they get a... Oh, yeah. The, the, uh, butterfly. Why do they feel their anxiety in their stomach? Oh, yes. Okay, so the answer to that is you don't feel it in your stomach. You'd feel it in your... Let's just say, for lack of a better term, tummy. But what's actually happening here? Happening here is that anxiety is intrinsically associated with fight or flight, rest and digest. Right? This is your autonomic nervous system, and like we just so discussed, sympathetic sympathetic kicks on. Yeah, and sympathetic innervates the entire intestinal region, yeah. and what it will do is it will result in a vasodilation, vasoconstriction effect. It will innervate the bowel, and it will result in a sensation that's felt. And that's what we're feeling. The more vasoconstriction. So kind of a reduction in blood flow to the area. Mm-hmm. And, and So is this where, I, I think this has been disproven, but you know how they used to say that people um, who are highly an- anxious, so you've got a super stressful job, you get ulcers. Yeah. Would there be any truth that if they are constantly in a sympathetic state, they're getting a lot of vasoconstriction, therefore they're, stomach isn't getting a good blood flow so that might become a bit ischemic a bit therefore a bit ulcerated any, Ulcer- do no. you think any 
plausibility there? No, I, I would say that existing ulcers would be exacerbated, but I wouldn't say there's any cause because it makes no physiological sense that anxiety would lead to an ischemic event without some underlying. Well, this is chronic though. Issue. This is not just yeah, um, but you're would, running from a bear for 20 minutes. It's sure, like but the constriction doesn't eight, result eight in, hours a day doesn't result in null, nil, nothing. You know, parasympathetic innervation is balanced out nicely by symp- sympathetic and parasympathetic balance each other out, and you get reflexive rebound effects. And so, I think it's plausible. I think you're wrong. I think, by and large, yeah, the the causes of ulcers would be from the bacteria. And wasn't there a, what was that other cause? There's another secondary. Just from, is there any foods that cause it? Uh, you can have exacerbations. <laughs> I don't know why I'm blanking on what the second most common cause. Yeah, for yeah. peptic ulcers are. We spoke about it on the ABC radio oh, of course. Like the other week. What uh, is it? NSAID use. Yes, we should talk about that. Yeah. Okay, you want to talk about it? What do you want me to talk about? Well, basically... Um, prostic- what are NSAIDs? A non-steroid steroid <laughs> anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, good examples would be aspirin, um, ibuprofen, acetaminophen. No, that's not so much that one. That's a non... That's Anyway, figure that one. <laughs> do the, do the, the classic... Just say aspirin and ibuprofen. Yeah, because... Yeah. Celebrex and Diclofenac, which is Voltaren, uh, minimally they, do that. But they do... They're cox too, not so much. Yeah. Uh, okay, so what happens is to regulate your mucus production in those mucus cells, you need prostaglandin release. Okay, and what happens... What's prostaglandin? Oh, I'm not going to keep going down this path. They're just cell <laughs> membranes. So they're just phospholipids. Okay. Right? So basically, it's uh, a byproduct of... Um, I'm not going down this pathway. No, but it has multiple... I think we did an episode on this. It has multiple multiple physiological effects throughout the whole body. A lot of them work by contracting smooth muscle, so like blood vessels, uterus, in inflammation, things like this. But also has a very important role in um, homeostasis of mucus production in your stomach. Correct. Now, because you're blocking it, because you're trying to get rid of inflammation somewhere else, like back pain or knee pain or something else like that. Yeah. You it also blocks these prostaglandins in your stomach, which stops mucus production, yep. which makes your stomach more vulnerable to the acid, which then can eat a hole through it. Perfect. But this would be number two. Yeah. My assumption is there may be a small plausible possibility that stress, long term chronic stress, may cause like I said, through I the think sympathetic but Okay. I would I say it's it rare, but I'm going to say it's possible. Yeah. Well. Let's okay. Any other questions? Uh, look, there were, but I can't remember them, and my phone is being used to record us uh, running. <laughs> so, but, but I think we. Please, yeah. If you are on Michael's uh, Instagram, and if you're not, you should be. Um, please ask or put some questions in, particularly when we when he's asked. We're going to do this topic this week in the podcast. Inflammation next week. Okay. Sound good? Yeah. All right. Thanks, Maddie. Is that it? No, we're done. Transitional sign-offs. Okay. Um, if you're watching us on YouTube, you're watching us on YouTube. Doctor Matt, Doctor Mike's medical YouTube. This is the first. If, if you're listening to us, feel free to watch us. You can see us sit here and not do much, but talk. But I'm wearing a pretty cool shirt, and Matt looks homeless. So you could well, potentially the, oh, watch oh, that. Oh, well, we are at Matt's house. Um, you can send us an email, and we have received bunch of awesome emails from people thanking us for our podcast and our YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. Uh, we pride ourselves on providing high quality free education. Uh, free education is the major point here. Free, free is from my point. High quality is Michael's. Correct. <laughs> Matt's about money. I'm about quality. But together, what a business plan. So feel free to access our stuff. Um, look, send us an email, gubiosciences 
at gmail.com or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, all that type of stuff. We'll see you next week. See you guys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 